Uh, it is so nice to have the kids with us. It's always like a beautiful Sunday when we have their joy and their rambunctiousness and tenderness on stage with us. But I think this year it's especially nice uh, because this year things are especially hard. And it's nice to have little reminders that there's more to our lives than the things that are hard, right? Um, one of the ways you know that things are really hard for us collectively right now is when you look at some of the data on our collective behaviors right now. And if you know what you're looking for, what you will see is that like we collectively, like as a people, as a society, are doing the kinds of things that humans do when they don't actually want to live the lives they are living. All these different sort of escapist behaviors, and they run the spectrum of fairly harmless to quite harmful. Uh, some of the really harmful sort of escapist behaviors, things that we do when we don't want to actually live the lives that we are living, we're seeing a big spike in those behaviors. Uh, substance abuse um, and all the kind of correlating problems that come with spiking substance abuse. There's a lot of data that says that more and more of us are turning toward that kind of a thing right now. Um, and there's even darker things that we do when we don't want to live the lives that we are living. Um, the kind of actions that are really uh, grave to speak of, and yet those numbers are spy, uh, spy, skyrocketing uh, right now. Uh, here's another one, an interesting chart that I saw. Uh, put this on the screen. So this is a, a certain economic behavior uh, <laughs> charted uh, you know, for the past few years, including uh, leading up to and then through the beginning of the pandemic last March. Uh, any guesses what behavior this is charting? Drinking, not a bad guess. I think if we put that up here, it would, it would be similar, but that's not what this is. Shopping, shopping. shopping, online shopping, not a bad guess. Yeah, that's probably Amazon's profit curve right there for all I know. <laughs> but that's not actually what this is. This is a chart uh, showing online sports gambling. Yeah, interesting, right? <laughs> Didn't see that coming. Um, by the way, this is not a sermon against uh, a friendly wager on a game. I've been known to do that myself. However, if you study anything about gambling, you know that it can be an addiction and um, just like if you were to see drinking spiking like that or other kind of substance use, you would say, we are probably not well. Uh, same can go with a behavior like, uh, like gambling. And, and that, I just stumbled into that chart the other day. And the thread through all of this, these kind of behaviors, is that they're a way of kind of numbing or distracting or escaping. And it's just the case with humanity that we have this peculiar capacity to just decide that we don't want to live the lives we are living. And so we look for a way out. And I think this is especially true um, when we feel vulnerable or frail, or to use a word that we've been looking at the last few weeks, when we feel kind of hopeless about where things are or where they might be going. Now, uh, let's go back to the kids. We've been talking to the kids in their classrooms and getting some responses from them on some questions that we've been asking. Uh, Karen shared this with me and the rest of our team. One of the questions we asked the kids in the classrooms the last couple of weeks that they wrote out some answers to is to complete this sentence. I think God is dot, dot, dot. Uh, for example, one kid said, I think God is ours. I love that. I think that's actually really nice. Yeah, like God is ours. God has given God's self to us. They've been listening to the preaching for the last like three months. God has given God's self to us. God is ours. What about this one? Uh, I think God is powerful. Yeah, good. What else here? I think God is everybody's father. I love that. Not just my father, not just my friend's father, but everybody's father. Or how about this? I think God is loving, wonderful. Uh, how about this one? This is my favorite in the list. I think that God is the bread to our sandwich. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't know, but this kid could be the brightest theologian in the house because we could probably build a whole metaphysic on this idea. I mean, we're doing the Eucharist later today. I mean, this is very, very good. 
Um, but then there's this last response from one of the kids in one of our classes, I think God is Jesus. Uh, this is so good and so spot on in a way that I want to explore with you, and not because it's the right answer to a theology exam or not because it's the thing that Christians fight about with people who don't believe what Christians believe, for none of those reasons, but for another reason I want to try to like, argue before you today. This is really important and at the heart of what we should be saying to one another during this very like, difficult season in the world that we're living in with a new pandemic variant and like, the darkness of winter. I don't know about you. Have the gray days been hard for you? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm usually like, I like winter. I actually like get really excited about the changing season. The gray days have been hard for me. Um, I don't know what's been hard for you about this season, but with everything going on, I wanna press further into what's peculiar and interesting about that particular observation. Because I think what the, this child is reminding us of is the, the one really peculiar, unique thing that this Christian story has to say to us. And it's revolutionary and it's profound and it's the easiest thing in the world to miss or gloss over or forget about or dilute or skew or twist in a way that we lose the powerful, beautiful, humanizing, uh, healing thing that it is saying to us. Now, it's always been the case that like, to be Christian is to say that God is like Jesus. This is a really big deal. It's not, it's not that we take all of our pre-existing ideas about God and we drop them down into Jesus' life. Rather, that we take everything we see in Jesus and then we kind of from that construct a picture of God from what we see there. Uh, for example, we see in the book of Colossians, this is a letter written to uh, Christians in the first century. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Or later in that same letter, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, like this Christmas season, as we get ready to like do the Christmas Eve thing and light the candles and tell the story, I just want to drive this home for people who are wondering how it is that we could like find some hope when we feel so vulnerable and fragile and shaken by the world that we are living in right now. Because what I want to propose is that in the Christmas story, when we see God living God's life in the vulnerability of a baby, like what if that's not a surprising way for God to show up? What if that's not God being like provocative or trying to do something unexpected? What if for God to live God's life in creation, what if the only thing that ever made sense to God was that God would arrive in the vulnerability of a baby? There's that uh, passage that we turn to in the Christmas story in Luke 2. And it's so like basic and pedestrian and common that you might skip over or you might ask if that's precisely the point, right? This is Luke 2. While they, that's Joseph and Mary, were in Nazareth, the time came for the baby to be born, and Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. That basic little paragraph about God living God's life among us, I think that's where we ought to turn for people who are tired of feeling fragile and vulnerable by a world that keeps breaking around us and in us, right? Um, curiously, do you know that humans are born like more vulnerable, more fragile than like any other mammal? Do you know this? You ever like go down the YouTube nature documentary hole and like get to the disturbing stuff where like animals are being born, you know? You ever notice that like a deer or a horse is born walking the minute they come out of the womb? You ever notice that? Apparently there's something in the evolutionary history of our species where like having to do with the size of our brains, our skulls, and the size of the birth canal, things that I won't go any further into with kids in the room. But uh, apparently like, like as our species sort of developed the kind of brains and heads that we have, it became necessary that we would come out very, 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 very vulnerable. I mean, needing absolutely everything 
from the people around us. And this is how this story describes the arrival of God, the presence of God in the world. Utterly vulnerable. And what I'm trying to say is like, what if, what if this isn't an exception to the nature of God? What if this is the, thing, the only way that would have made sense for God to arrive in the world? Like we pray prayers to like almighty God, but a number of theologians have argued we'd be better off sometimes praying prayers to all vulnerable God. That perhaps God, in, like the divinity of God and in the magic of God and in the love of God and in the power of God, that God is vulnerable in a way that we keep trying to run from trying to rescue ourselves from. And so when we feel vulnerable or fragile or when the world around us feels vulnerable or fragile, we find all these ways to escape, to say we don't want to live the lives that we are living because the lives that we are living are vulnerable sometimes. And yet right here at the heart of the story is God arriving in utter vulnerability. I mean, have you ever noticed in your own life how easy it is to think that you are somehow closer to God or closer to God's best for your life when you're winning rather than when you're losing? Or that you're somehow closer to God or that God is somehow closer to you when you feel like you were getting ahead rather than when you were like falling behind. And so for all these reasons, whenever we feel like we're losing instead of winning, falling behind instead of getting ahead, when we're racked with the kind of fragility that we don't like about ourselves, we try to escape these lives in these different kind of ways. And some of those ways are really harmful and some not so much. But this story is saying that God actually enters, that God is present in, that God lives God's life in the most vulnerable, fragile kind of state. And if if God is actually found there, then maybe we could find ourselves trusting the vulnerabilities and fragilities that we are trying to run from. And instead of trying to run from them, we could actually live in the center of them. And maybe that's where God wants to meet us and form us. And maybe the things that God does in us when we are most vulnerable and fragile are the things that we will turn to when we look for hope. Because what we've been trying to work out over the last few weeks, whether we were talking about climate change or justice, is that I think like a good biblical definition of hope is not that we like just do it on our own, we just summon the will and find our strength and make things happen in the world on the one hand, but also that hope is not that we just sit on our hands and passively hope that one day God waves a magic wand and fixes things, but rather I, my best understanding of what the Bible means when it talks about hope is that we discover that moving into our lives through weakness and fragility and vulnerability, God is working with us and through us and growing us up. And that like, we are becoming the kind of people formed in character who can like, get our hands on this world and do good and beautiful things with it. And the growing in that way usually happens when we are fragile and vulnerable. I was thinking a lot about um, examples of this in my life, and there are many of <laughs> uh, times and seasons when I felt fragile and vulnerable and when, frankly, I didn't want to live the life I was living, <laughs> right? Um, and one of the really uh, potent examples of the last few years of my life has to do with a house that I bought when I was in college. Some of you have heard me tell stories of um, the rampant irresponsibility of myself as a homeowner. But let me remind you of this story if this is news to you or you want to hear it again. So when I got, uh, college was wrapping up, I was still a student, but I got my first full-time job. And I was really excited to buy a house. I was raised in what you might call the cult of home equity. And what I just mean is that I was raised as like a middle-class dude, like in the middle America, and like home ownership is how you build your financial well-being, right? And so I was very excited to get my first job and to find a house. Although when I bought a house, looking back, I realized one problem was that my vision for my house looked more like that of a fraternity than it did like a good domestic middle-class man, right? And so I buy this house, and I invite six of my buddies to move in with me. That's seven of us living in a three-bedroom house. By the way, code enforcement in the city of South Bend had a problem with that too, in case you're wondering. 
uh, single family zoning, not exactly single family with seven of us in a three bedroom house. And then of course the other problem is that when we all moved into that house, we did exactly the kinds of things that college guys do in a house, except we were Christian college guys, but everything else. We treated that house the way you would expect seven guys who were like, like very, very early 20s to treat that house. And then here's the other problem. I lived in that house for like 14 years and I never stopped treating it the way that college guys treat their houses. Part of it was I didn't know how to fix things in my house and it's hard for me to ask for help on that front. Part of it is I'm of the disposition that thinks if you have extra money, experiences are more exciting than fixing things. So I like to go have experiences. <laughs> And so like during that whole time, our response to things like broken windows, for example, was that we would take a you know, kitchen trash bag and just tape it over the window and leave it that way for a couple of years. Some of you have done that with your car. It never dawned on you that you would do that with your house. But that's because you did not have the ingenuity that I had in uh, stewarding this domestic property of mine. Uh, there, was the, there was an add-on room at the back of the house. It had been a patio at some point in the house's history. But at some point, a prior homeowner had sort of built this like living room on that patio, although they didn't build it well, um, which means perhaps I was living in the pattern of former homeowners. Maybe the house was just cursed, I don't know. But uh, at one point the ceiling panel started to like sag, like there was a gap between you know, the ceiling and the roof. And so uh, in my ingenuity, I remembered that upstairs I had a used shower curtain rod. You know the thing that like you hang your shower curtain on? Well, I had one that started rusting but I couldn't figure out how to fit it in the trash can, so I just threw it in a closet. And so I had this used shower curtain rod that was just sitting there in the home, and then I had the couch underneath the part of the roof that was sagging, the ceiling that is. And so I figured out if I just wedged part of the shower curtain rod into the couch cushion, the other part could hold up the ceiling. <laughs> and some of you are thinking, how is this guy in charge of anything, <laughs> right? You're already like drafting your letters of concern to the staff and the board, I get that. Don't worry, I'm not in charge of the building around here. So here's the thing though, like it does get worse and worse and worse. There were some water issues in the basement, uh, some black mold, like all the worst kinds of things going on in this house. And it reaches a point where it's like, this is untenable. <laughs> like this is not a, a wise way for me to keep living. I have to figure out what to do with this thing. So anyway, uh, I reached out to some, uh, some great friends who are really good at real estate, local people who are really kind to me and supportive and they know real estate and they know the market and they know these kind of houses. And so we worked together on it and the first idea that we have is we should probably look for an as-is buyer. Like what if we just find a wholesale buyer that comes in and just kind of takes this thing on. These are people who you know, invest in properties and turn them around and use them for rentals or whatever. And so we bring in uh, a few different people who, who do that kind of thing. And the best offer I get Granted, this is as is, but the best offer I get is for one-third of what I paid for it. Not one-third less than what I paid for it. Like 33% of what I paid for it is the best offer I get. Here's the other issue. Back in 2005 when I bought that house, which is not a great time to buy houses, not only were values sort of pumped up on houses, so you paid a lot for a house in 2005, but back in 2005, some of us thought that it was a good idea to buy a house with zero down. <laughs> now, I don't know how much you know about mortgages, but it turns out if you buy a house with zero down and then you pay your mortgage payment faithfully every month for like 14 years, you know what? You still owe most of what you owed on the house. So we get these offers and guys, I am in a rock, between a rock and a hard place in a way that I've never been before in my financial life. And I spent the next year um, like really struggling with this. I was in that weird situation where I couldn't really stay in the house because it was really such a disaster. 
but I couldn't really afford to fix up the house because it was going to be really expensive to fix up this house. I remember at one point while we were fixing it up, I got this text message from one of the guys who's working on it, and he shows me that when they pull up the floor in the upstairs bathroom, the trusses are just completely rotted out underneath it. But a little bit of moisture from the toilet had been dripping for a very long time, and we had to go even further into the project, and I couldn't afford to stay it, I couldn't afford to fix it, and I couldn't afford to sell it. And for like a year, I just felt um, not just trapped, but the word is uh, humiliated. Because this is all my fault. It was just a, a one bad decision after another. A bad decision to buy a house with zero down. Um, a bad decision to not you know, maintain it as I owned it for all those years, to not fix it up when it needed fixing up, to not save money or pay down the mortgage. And here I was at the tail end of a number of years of really bad decisions, and I just didn't like it. I remember uh, like, you know, Googling bankruptcy and wondering if that was going to be my only way out of this, but not sure if that was the right thing to do. Um, I remember like, uh, I developed enough anxiety during that season of my life that I had to find some new bedtime practices because if I didn't find some practices to kind of settle my anxiety at the end of the night, I wasn't going to be able to sleep for the night. And I just thought, like, is that it? Is this like the end of my financial life? I'm like in my mid-30s and this is going to be the story written about me? Like, Jay, you got trapped in a house and he never got out. Like, <laughs> I had pictures of myself like being buried in the basement of that house at the end of my life, right? It's going to be my burial plot. Um, and during that season, I remember that feeling we have, which is, I don't want to live this life. Not that I didn't want to live life, but I don't want to live this version of my life. I just want out. Nothing, nothing like super dark in that direction, but I just mean like, we all have these moments, right, where we don't want to live the actual lives that we are living, and often when we don't want to live the lives we are living, it's because we feel vulnerable or fragile. I just told a story about a really difficult circumstance that made me feel vulnerable that I chose, right? Often, like, we find that we are the victims of our own choices, right? But then there's another whole batch of circumstances that a lot of us face, circumstances that you didn't chose, but they chose you. And you just wake up one day, and something has happened, or many things have happened, and you're, you're living a life that you don't want to live. And, and I think um, there are a lot of understandable reasons to not want to live these vulnerable, fragile lives, but I think ultimately, if you peel back all the layers and you get all the way down to the soul of things, to the heart of things, I think a lot of us have been taught for so long that God is with us when we are winning, but not when we are losing. That we are closest to the divine life that we are made for when we are getting ahead rather than when we were falling behind. And if you think that you are somehow ineligible for the life of God, if you are somehow ineligible for what we are made for, which is life with God, then of course we don't want to live the life that we are living. But that forgets that thing that we saw 2,000 years ago and we keep returning to during this season, which is that God actually lived God's life and the kind of vulnerability that staggers the mind. And, and the utter vulnerability of a baby who needed and wanted and craved and hungered and thirsted. But that's actually like how the life of God was lived in the world. And if that's the case, then I don't know that we need to fear the moments in our life where we want and crave and find ourselves at the limits of ourselves. When I look back on that season, um, I'm not happy that it happened. But to be honest, ultimately, I think it was really good for me. I think some things were forged in me through that season that I would not trade. I mean, first of all, it was really humbling. And I know that um, this might be unpopular language today, but I still think it's really good for us to be humbled. I think it's really hard for anything good to happen in our lives if we aren't starting with a baseline of some kind of humility. It's just, it's just like you can't find a wisdom tradition in the world. You can't find a spiritual path in the world that has been tested through time that doesn't tell you that at some point it has to come back to being humbled to being brought low in some ways so that we remember that we have to ask for help. And by the way, another one of the really good things about that season of my life is that I had to ask for help. 
And I will say, like, some friends came through, some family came through for me in really dramatic ways, and I'm very, very grateful for that. It wasn't comfortable asking for help, but the thing about asking for help is that you were reminded of what was always true of you, which is that your life is gift, it's not earned. Right? I mean, from the minute you were born, like, every breath that you have drawn was a gift. You have been sustained by a conspiracy of events in the universe that have created a world where you could live your life, and it is all gift. And I know that, like, within our lives, we strive and we try to earn things and we fight for things. And by the way, it's good to be the kind of person who, like, finds a way to work hard and earn what you need to have. Those can be good and virtuous things. But don't you know that, like, no matter how much you have fought for yourself and earned for yourself, that your life has been sustained infinitely more by the things that have been given to you. Like, the universe that you live in and the breath that you breathe, Grace is just a truth about being human, and so when you ask for help, you're living a little bit closer to that truth. Um, It was good for me to have to make hard choices and face the consequences of my decisions. It's actually like a good thing. Like we don't grow up, we don't get better or more mature when we're not like dealing with the consequences of the things that we've chosen, right? Now, by the way, I know that some of you are facing consequences for things you didn't choose, consequences of other people's bad decisions or just a broken world. And like, I want to make sure like, I distinguish that, right? But some of us just need to like, face the consequences and do the work and, and grow up. And I'm like, actually glad that I had to do that because I like the maturing version of me better than I like the immature version of me. And there's still a lot of work to be done there. But at the end of the day, like, all those movements, to ask for help and to make the hard choices, these were movements toward my vulnerability when I wanted to escape it, right? And I think what I'm trying to say as we turn the corner toward Christmas and we wrap up this conversation on hope is that the kind of hope that we are longing for, I don't think it will be found in trying to make ourselves strong where we are weak, but by embracing that weakness and asking God to meet us there and to be the kind of people who like work with God to become and to grow and to mature. There's a a book of daily prayer that I started using during that season because guys, I was flailing. I just needed like some anchors, some grounding, some help. And this book of daily prayer is written by an Irish poet named Padre Gotuma. And um, so there's all these different prayers in the book, but then there's, there's a daily prayer that he proposes that you pray every morning, just kind of a written prayer. And I found myself praying every morning. And I'll never forget the first time I prayed through this prayer. There's a line in the prayer that just like stopped me and it shook me. And even today, like I have a hard time saying this sentence out loud because of what it does in me. And guys, when I show it to you, you're going to be so annoyed because it's so simple. Like, you might be like, wait, that was very anticlimactic, that that was the sentence in the prayer that moved you, Jay. But I'm, I'm pretty easy like that. So, um, but this is the line from the prayer from Padre Gotuma. We will live the life we are living. We won't try to escape it or deny it. We won't run from it. We won't be ashamed of it. We will live the life we are living. We will stand in the center of our actual lives with all their vulnerability and fragility, with all the things that aren't the way that we want them to be, with all the broken places in our lives and in the world, but we will live the life we are actually living because to be human isn't something to run from. To be human isn't something to be ashamed of. To be human isn't something that we need to escape from. And whatever God is doing, it certainly doesn't seem that he is interested in making us less human because at the center of the story that we celebrate is God being human. God living God's life in that perfectly vulnerable body that we call a baby. And if God will live a divine life 
in the midst of the vulnerability and fragility of being human, then we too don't have to escape these lives to live our life with God, to live the kind of divine life that we're craving, that we're looking for. There's still days when like, I pray that prayer um, trembling a little bit. Because I think if I spend the rest of my life trying to live up to that simple prayer, it'll, it'll be enough to um, have gotten my life to live up to the convictions that I have about who God is and what it is to be human. And I think I'll probably spend my whole life trying to live up to that prayer, but every day that I do live up to it, I find it's the best kind of life. Not the easiest, not the most comfortable, <laughs> but certainly the most hopeful. Because when you spend your energy escaping your life, that's where despair starts to creep in because you are reinforcing the myth that the only way for you to be okay is to not live the life that you were living. There's no hope in that journey, right? Uh, but here in the story of Jesus, not just, um, you know, Talaga Diganite's baby Jesus, but uh, in the whole scope of Jesus' life, we see a God who is more comfortable with vulnerability than we are. Because of course, like you start with baby Jesus, but then later you find crucified Jesus. Which is to say that, that it seems that Jesus never stopped allowing himself to be made vulnerable in the world. The story of the death of Christ is not just the vulnerability of his physical body, although it is, it's the vulnerability of his relationships. I mean, this guy utterly abandoned and betrayed. Like, you think that if you just showed up better in the world, your friends wouldn't be so fickle? No, <laughs> people are just fickle sometimes. It may have nothing to do with you, right? Um, you think if you do it right, if you like, play it by the book, you won't have hard days, you won't be made vulnerable. But here in the story of Jesus, we find out it's just not true. And so, um, on, the, on the, the cusp of Christmas, we're also going to come to this Eucharistic meal. And what I hope for us today, in a season when we are looking for hope, when we are facing a lot of fragility and vulnerability, I hope that today in this meal we would find ourselves sustained by the God who showed up vulnerable and fragile with a body pierced and a life laid down and with friends betraying him. And if the divine life can be lived in the midst of those kinds of circumstances, then the divine life can be lived in the middle of your actual life too. And so I wanna remind you that Jesus was with his friends and he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And I can't help but wonder if he just knew in that moment that he was describing the kind of vulnerability that shapes these stories that we walk through every day. And there's a kind of solidarity in this gift that may not fix everything tomorrow, but I think it will shore up our spirits and sustain us through the hard things that we face. And he took a cup and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant, of a promise forged in my blood. That when, when you see a God who is willing to make God's self so vulnerable is to not only be born a baby, but to die, you are seeing a God who is not gonna give up on you. Whether you're the one who's failed or whether things have failed you, you're seeing a God who's not gonna give up on you. Uh, he uses the word covenant. Covenant is the strongest possible word for a promise. And that's the word he uses for the way that he will be with you on the hard days and the good days. And this is um, Eucharistic hope and this is Advent hope. And this is the best way I know for us to prepare our hearts for Christmas. And so um, I wanna pray for these elements for us. And then when I'm done praying, uh, well, while, while I'm praying, those who are gonna serve, you can get up out of your seat and go to the tables in the corners uh, to serve your sisters and brothers. And then when I'm done praying, you'll be free if you'd like to get up out of your seat and come forward and receive a meal that was made possible by a God who is more willing to be vulnerable than we are sometimes. 
And maybe as you come to this meal today, you'll pray that same prayer that I've been praying, which is simply this, that we will live the life we are living. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for the profound mystery of Jesus. In that very common paragraph that could have been written to describe the birth of almost any child, we remember that we are reading of the presence and arrival of God. And so I pray that just as you arrived in the vulnerability of Mary's baby, that we would look for you arriving in the vulnerability of our flesh and blood lives. That even as we have felt the foundations shaking in our world, even as a pandemic continues to rattle us, harm us, even as we in so many ways have been divided and conquered by a dysfunctional politic, even as families struggle under the weight of another pandemic winter, even as some of us uh, wonder whether our mental health will make it through another season, even as some of us um, just feel the failure points more than we feel any strength, we come to this table and we remember that you have come in Christ, born of a uh, Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he, was died, that he died and was buried. We trust that resurrection doesn't come from avoiding our lives, but simply by walking with you through them. And so we thank you for this meal. May we be sustained in a hope that is real, that meets us on the days when things are hardest, that's better than optimism, better than plastering a smile on a face that wants to weep, but a real hope grounded in our life with you and in what we are becoming. We pray that these elements today would be for us the life of Jesus, his body given for us and for the world. And we thank you as we come. And we pray through Christ. And we all said, amen. As you'd like, uh, you're welcome to get up out of your seat and go to the table.